Friends, our scripture lesson this morning is a continuation from last week in the Gospel of Mark. I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, and I encourage you to bring a Bible to these uh, services, to turn to Mark chapter 1, and I will be reading from verse 21 through 31. This is the first act of public ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel, and that's significant. I'll explain that in a second. Hear these words from the gospel of Mark. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one as having authority, not as the scribes. Just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him? At once his fame began to spread throughout the region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if Jesus turned up in a Presbyterian church, say this Presbyterian church, what do you think would happen? Do you think a fight would break out? Do you think he would find demons? Do you think there'd be an exorcism? I know that sounds crazy. It sounds even crazier in a, in, a, in a pandemic area when we're not actually meeting at church, but what if Jesus showed up on, on a Zoom conversation <laughs> or a Zoom worship service or, or, or whatever? What would happen? It's not a rhetorical question, you know, because, because Jesus' public ministry begins just that way. He shows up in a synagogue and an exorcism takes place. And that's important because it defines his whole ministry in Mark's gospel. You see, Jesus in Mark's gospel is about, is about confronting that which deforms and defaces human existence. He confronts the demonic in his world. And there's a, there's a lot of yelling and screaming in Mark's gospel. It's interesting in, in that regard that that's the way Mark begins the public ministry of Jesus. Now you could say that about all of the gospels. 
Because Luke begins the public ministry of Jesus, also in a synagogue. He takes the Isaiah scroll, and you'll remember, he reads from that scroll about recovering of sight for the blind and release for the captives and letting the oppressed go free. And interestingly, that's what Jesus is about in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember what the first act of public ministry is in Matthew? The Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is a teacher in Matthew. How about John? Interestingly enough, the first act of public ministry in John is making wine out of water. And in John's gospel, Jesus is about the abundance of life for all of us here and now in the midst of scarcity. So I just wanted to set that up so we can see how dramatic this is that in Mark's gospel, the very first act that Jesus does is an exorcism in a religious institution. It's confronting demons. So the question is a viable question for us in the Presbyterian church, Second Presbyterian church, any church. If Jesus showed up, what would happen? Would there be an exorcism? Would there be a confrontation with the demonic? Now let's look at what happens in this scene. It's really interesting because Jesus shows up and he's teaching and the people are impressed with his teaching. In fact, they say that he's teaching with authority, uh, not as the other religious leaders. So there's some real power in his teaching. And, and, and the congregants of, of, of the synagogue uh, not only notice that, but a man possessed with a demon. The demon sees it. And the demon cries out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us, Holy One of God? Now, it's, it's, it's a powerful way to address Jesus. Note that it's, it's a double address. They, they acknowledge both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God. And note that it is an us that is addressing them. There, is, there are demons, a whole world of demons in this man. And it seems that the demons want to confront Jesus. They maybe even want to possess him. They want to take control of him just as they had taken control of the man. But Jesus would have none of it, for he is possessed. Yes, he is possessed by what? The Holy Spirit. We saw that at the baptism. In the baptism, Jesus was given the Spirit and given the power over the demonic in his world. And so Jesus yells out, be silent, which could be more like, be muzzled. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the demons don't follow Jesus' lead. They don't, they, 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 they're not silent. They cry out and convulsing the man, they leave. But it's a powerful scene. It's a, almost a violent scene that takes place in a synagogue. And the people are amazed at what has happened. In fact, they might be just a little bit panicked because Jesus is disrupting the ordinary way of going about things. So back to the original question. What would happen if Jesus showed up in our churches, in the Presbyterian church, at Second Presbyterian Church? Would he... Would he find the demonic there? Would there be an exorcism? 
Would that be a good thing? I dare say, if he did find the mnemonic, it would be a good thing. It'd be a healing opportunity. It'd be an opportunity for that church to grow and to live in to what it is called to be and to do. I dare say it would be. Hasn't it been that way for us here at Second? I mean, in a, in a, in a real and, and vital way, we are confronting the demons of our world and the demons of our history and, and, and the demons that, uh, that, that, that surely have, 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 we're reckoning with right now at this present moment during this pandemic, which is, which is, which is really a triple pandemic of health and, and a racial reckoning and political polarization. At second, I mean, you know, in, in some ways, I, I don't want to say we should be proud of ourselves, but, 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 but we, ought to, we, we, we ought to feel pretty good that we are taking some things on. With book groups, uh, with, with lectures, with, 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 with the uh, Moving Forward Task Force, on, on, on racial reckoning, not only with our history, but with our present racialized experience in America. We're trying our best to come to terms with it. But it's not only us that need to come to terms with it. Because we live in a world um, that also other churches, other institutions, um, virtually everything that we see and everything that we touch or don't touch, what we see online, what we, what we see, you know, the, the institutions that we think we know, all of them, all of them need to change. We are really in a reformation of sorts. Alec and I were just talking about that before worship this morning, and I, I, and I think that's, that's not an exaggeration. Because we are living in a time that is changing reality about us. It's changing everything we know about reality. And when we move forward, things are not going to be the same, and they shouldn't be the same. Especially when it comes to a racial reckoning and a political reckoning. Especially when it comes to the kinds of things that we have been through that have threatened democracy itself. And we all have a role to play in this reformation. As I was thinking about these things, I was struck by a uh, question that a former colleague of mine uh, asked me through a text. Uh, she said, what is moral and theological evil? Well, now, I've been trained to be a, a theological ethicist, so I, sh I should have had a ready answer for that one. But I confess it, it brought me up short and I had to think about it uh, for just a moment. But after I did, I thought, well, you know, our good old Reformed heritage has something to say about that. We call moral and theological evil idolatry. Now, that may sound like an arcane word uh, that goes back into the history of our tradition and not a very relevant word for our present moment, but I want to argue with you on that if you think that that it is actually a very relevant word for us. In fact, it finds expression in a very modern confession of faith, one that we use here a lot. Uh, the brief declaration of faith says that in a broken and fearful world, the Spirit gives us courage to unmask idolatries where? 
in church and in culture. And the interesting thing, it starts with the church. And that's where Jesus started in a religious institution to unmask idolatries. Now, what is an idolatry? Well, I want to contend that it can be uh, defined in a lot of different ways, but I want to, I want to suggest uh, this morning that an interesting way to define it is idolatry is a lie. Not just any old lie. It's a big lie. It's a big, dirty lie. It's a lie about us, humans, our relationship to one another. It's a lie about our relationship with the earth. And it's a lie about God. And the lie often is of this sort. It devalues some rather than others. It puts a hierarchy of values on different races. Um, it exploits the earth, even though it's God's good creation. And then it brings God in to bless the whole arrangement. You know, we've been doing that kind of thing from the beginning, haven't we? Didn't the lie start with the serpent in the garden? Yeah, it did. The deception started there. The greatest commandment uh, in Mark's gospel uh, that Jesus defined it is, you know it well. We say it here often in worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that commandment holds within it actually what has happened to us. Because we haven't loved God with all of who we are, nor our neighbor as ourselves. We, we, we have a constricted vision of who is loved. And who, we have a constricted vision of who is valued. In other words, we lie about people and our relationships with people. And we lie about God when we bring God in to bless it all. Exposing the lie is what we're called to be and do. A powerful book that I hope to do in a, a book group here is Eddie Glaude's book, Begin Again, which is uh, a book about James Baldwin and, his, and his, his life and message for us here today. Eddie Glaude is a professor of African-American studies. Uh, he also studied religion, by the way. He's, uh, uh, his, his PhD was actually in religion, but he, he's, uh, he's become the professor of African-American studies at uh, Princeton University. It's a profound, deep book that is very accessible, by the way. And in it, he, um, he, he, the first chapter is entitled The Lie. And it's what James Baldwin articulated about the lie of racism here in this country. Baldwin said that the lie is the most pervasive reality. It is the foundation for the, the, you know, everything that we see and everything that we breathe uh, in, in American life. It is, it, 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 it is, it, it, it gets in, it's incessant in everything that we see, all the structures of the world. And that's why he calls it the lie, simply the lie. In reflecting on Baldwin's uh, articulation of the lie, Eddie Glaude says, now there are reckonings and there have been reckonings of the past as we've tried to come to terms with the lie, but we always seem to pull back, at least white people do. White people pull back because of fear. 
Fear of our standing in the world, that we're going to lose it. Fear that we might lose our material standing or some such thing. That's what Gloud says about white Americans. And that brings me up short. It may bring you up short too. Because I think it's the kind of thing that we have to confront. We've seen it over the course of this last year. We've seen it, dare I say, for all of our lives. Um, it has been the reality that has been screaming for our attention for the entirety of the history of the United States of America. In this reckoning that we are in at this moment, we have an opportunity, a profound opportunity, a profound opportunity for an exorcism that has been a long time coming in the power of the Spirit of Jesus. That's what we can be about as a people, as a church. We've started the process and we've been given a charge and a call to continue it, it seems to me. And I know that the people of this church that I've gotten to know over the last year and a half are certainly engaged in it and certainly want to do it. Empowered by the Spirit, we are called, as the confession says, to unmask idolatries in the church and in the world. May it be so. Amen.